Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. For this Followers of the Way episode, I want to focus on an aspect that I touch on from time to time. And if anyone's heard my teaching on Mark or on the book of Acts or just generally when I speak about authority and power, sometimes I will refer to this idea of sons of God or children of God. And also we'll quite often have to refer to Satan or the prince of this age. And I thought that this would be a good time to gather together some of my thoughts and put them into one place. So this is going to be the sons of God and Satan talk. In terms of secondary literature, I, I strongly recommend, there's a man named Michael Heiser. And he is, his book, The Unseen Realm, he's written some popular level books. The Unseen Realm is a much more scholarly study. He's an Old Testament scholar who pays attention to a lot of this stuff. Um, it's fun. The way I enjoy going into Mark and I deliberately choose the most thorny passages and then I enjoy talking about them. Well, he does the same with the Hebrew scriptures. He's a, he's a, he's a Christian, uh, Pentecostal, charismatic Christian who is also highly biblically educated in the Old Testament. And, um, he's a scholar. And I'll be honest that those two don't often coincide. And that's valuable to get. I'm not trying to be mean, but anybody who's spent time in some of these circles, of which I am one of them, I am part of that world. Genuine, intellectually rigorous scholarship doesn't often happen also in charismatic Pentecostal world, especially people who love talking about spirits and spiritual warfare and demons and angels and things. And so to find somebody like a Michael Heiser is gold dust. And I really recommend his The Unseen Realm. It's, it's a credible book and it's about a lot of the most thorny, strange, odd passages in the Hebrew scriptures. Well, in fact, the whole Bible, because he then uh, goes into the New Testament. But Heiser is, is so good at describing and unpacking some of this language, this sons of God, demons, angels, Satan type language that one finds. And I can't, I've been summing it up here and there. And it's, it's hard to sum up because it's a, it's a worldview that it underlies a lot. And we've just forgotten a lot. And then you often teach on this to, to, to believers or to people who've been Christians their whole lives. And they say, how come I've never heard any of this before? And how come nobody talks about it if it's so important? And the best, the best example I can give is that it's a bit like I don't begin every lecture. I don't spend every five minutes of every podcast saying, all right, so the world is round and the earth revolves around the sun. Okay, now that we've established the basics, let's talk about the gospel of Mark. It's a bit like that with sons of God and angels and demons. It was, it's part of the worldview. It's part of the intellectual imagination building blocks or furniture of the scriptures and they don't pause and unpack it every time so the apostle paul for example is constantly referring to this kind of stuff the, the new testament is always drawing from it the book of revelation is drawing from it the gospel of mark is alluding to it and they don't pause and just say 
Okay, everyone, the world is round and it revolves around the sun. Okay, now let's talk about Jesus. It's just a given. And um, some of the sons of God language, which is in the Greek Orthodox Church, the theology is of divinization. And a lot of evangelicals and Protestants get nervous about this, but it really is a deeply historically Christian idea. And it's not divinization in that you are God, Yahweh, you are the most high. It's more God became a human so that humans might become gods or might access the divine or take their rightful place in the, uh, the take their rightful place in the authority over the world. And this is the story in the New Testament. And I know it sounds odd to Protestant or evangelical ears, but that's that's on us. This is a historically valid and scripturally rich idea. And it is not that you are God and that in looking deep inside yourself and you get to uncover the the secrets of the world through your own heart and head. It's not we're not saying that, but we're saying that um, you will judge angels. We are saying that all creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. We're saying that when the church endures through the sufferings of this age, Jesus will say, I give you the morning star. Come sit at my throne. Share my rule. It's what happens when he gives his disciples authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they come back and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This is God becoming a human so that humans might live as God. I don't know how else to say it. And I know that sounds weird, but bear with me. Let's look at some of the key verses here and I'll rattle them off. I, I, I really do think you should just go have a look at Michael Heiser throw some money that guy's way and get your, his book on Kindle, frankly. But here we go. Here's some of it. So Genesis 1, 26, where God says, let us create in our image. And there's we language and the, the, it's plural. It's famously plural. And a lot of Christians uh, will immediately think, oh, that's the Trinity. But, but it's not the Trinity. It's the plural language for the Godhead, which is Elohim. And Elohim is not a, a name of God. It's a it's a, a genre, it's a type of which God, the Yahweh, is the most high. But there are other Elohim in the Old Testament. And Yahweh is the head of them all. Much like the queen or the prime minister is a human being, but they are in charge of other human beings. So the general term is human being and the status and the hierarchy is a different way of describing them. So the queen, her name is not human being. Her name is Elizabeth. And she is the queen over other humans. I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, so there's we language. God is described as a member of a community. And and he makes humans and lifts them up into this, this uh, relationship. And the words that the Old Testament uses to describe this is that the Elohim are part of the divine council 
or the hosts, the council of hosts. And so, for example, like Psalm 82 is quite clear on this. Psalm 89, where the Lord Most High gathers together the other sons of God, uh, or Elohim. And sometimes they're called angels. Sometimes they're called demons. They're, they're spiritual beings. When they're good, they're angels, usually. And when they're bad, they're demons. But anyway... He calls together the sons of God and, and he gathers them in his council in Psalm 82, Psalm 89. And as I said before, the story of this Elohim ruling council is basically that they're doing a bad job. And the Lord Most High says to them, you have you have the rule of the nations, but you are not doing what I want you to do. There's still injustice in the land, the poor are being oppressed, that kind of thing. Another example of Elohim or sons of God doing a bad thing would be Genesis 6. One to four, the famous uh, Nephilim, which are the sons of God that are attracted to the daughters of men, to humans. And they, they come down and they, they mate with them and they, their children or their offspring become giants, are known as giants in the land. And it's this event in Genesis 6 that immediately precedes the flood. So this is the event that the, seems to be evil is now inextricably intertwined into the world the place where the nephilim are historic or mythically legendarily said to have landed on earth the hebrews sometimes called the the sons of god stars they looked up into the sky and they saw them like stars so the stars are up in the sky and they look down and they see the daughters of men and so they come down and where they touched was the plains of shinar this is one of the plains places they're supposed to have touched down well, the plains of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. And the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is, of course, also the beginning of the city of Babylon. So you're starting to see that the Babylonians linked the beginning of their civilization to their relationship to the sons of God. So building the tower was to reach back up to the skies to be as gods again. So this is what they're doing. They, our ancestors came down from the stars and now we're going to go back up. And then, of course, what happens is that in their arrogance, they, they are struck down with lots of different languages and chaos and confusion. Pay attention to the sons of God language here. The uh, Nephilim show up again in Numbers 13, 32 to 33. In Deuteronomy 32 and then uh, 8 and 9 and also 32 verse 17, you're getting... Again, the clear correlation between sons of God and nations or their rule over different people groups. And again, it's, it's not a positive thing. They seem to have rebelled in some way. Job, Job, one of the oldest books in the, in the entire Old Testament. Job 1 and 2 has mention of the council, uh, the divine council. God calls together the divine council, the semi-divine beings that are under him. And he calls them together. And they're called the sons of God. Job 1.6. Job 2.1. They're explicitly called sons of God. This council. And Satan is one of them. He makes an appearance. I think. I'm not going to die on this hill. But I think this might be one of the first appearances of Satan. Historically. If Job is one of the oldest texts. And Satan is a son of God. He's part of this divine council. And interestingly, if all you had was Job, it's not even apparent that Satan is necessarily a bad guy. It could be that he's just doing his job. His job is to test or to bring people to the Most High in order to test their quality.
It could be that. And this is part of the development, which I think we, I'm outside of my wheelhouse here. I, I like talking about it, but I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in any of this. I hope you know, I'm just a, an educated hobbyist. But in any case, <laughs> I would hasten to add that I I love it and I teach it. But I I am standing on the shoulders of other people that have done this work. I would really like to point that out. But if you're interested in Satan, there is a basic story, which is that the, the figure of Satan develops. So, for example, in Genesis, the snake who tempts Eve, the snake is described as a, he's a sort of a fantastic creature. He's, Michael Heiser argues, he says he is one of the sons of God. He's, the sons of God often show up as fantastical beasts, um, you know, eagles with lion's heads and that kind of thing. And here it's a talking snake who even seems to have legs at one point. And again, the point is that um, the snake is this glittering creature who's living with other sons of God in the Garden of Eden and then is jealous of the other humans who have been brought into this fold as fellow sons of God. And so the snake sows dissension. But it is just worth pointing out that at no time is the snake called Satan. Satan becomes identified with the snake in the New Testament later on. And, and because there's this developing idea of who Satan might be. And there are some passages, for example, in 2 Samuel 24. So it, if Job is the earliest text, then Job might be the earliest. But in, in any case, in terms of actually reading the Bible, the first time the word Satan shows up. Um, well, first of all, have a look at 2 Samuel 24. So we get this story where King David, he sins. And he sims because he's numbering Israel like he's he, he doesn't trust God and he sort of goes against he goes against uh, his what he should be doing. And he he takes it into his own hands and he counts up all the people he's got. And this incident is recorded in Second Samuel 24, 1. All right. Uh, and in this earlier entry, David's sin is said to have been related to the anger of God or God's wrath. But then the same story is told, and it was written down a few centuries later in First Chronicles 21.1. So we have, what happens is the Chronicles and the Samuel stories, they, they overlap, or they, they tell the same events, but from, there's a different points of view and also a different time span between them. And they're both in our Old Testament scriptures. They're both part of the people of God and their story. And in First Chronicles 21.1, this same story is recounted, but this time Satan is said to be the cause of David's sin. So Satan shows up. In the first story, the older story, it's the wrath of God or the anger of God. And in the second story, it's Satan who does it. And this is part of this idea that there is a developing idea of what of what of who Satan might be. And I know that it's complicated and I know that it's awkward and it doesn't all tie up into a neat little bow, but I'm, I don't know what else to tell you. This is the Bible we have. This is the scriptures we have that Hebrew scholars and even still today, a lot of Jewish teaching will sometimes refer to Satan as, as God's angry voice or the, the left hand of God or the angry part of God. 
And there isn't really a differentiation. It's just that Satan is part of the divine manifestation. And that when Satan shows up, that's God's wrath. And But Christian thought has taken a different turn where what where that the development that one is seeing in the hebrew scriptures of satan who begins life as one of god's elohim one of god's right hand co-rulers or, or underlings satan develops a, a character of his own in which he is proud and which he is deceitful of which he is jealous and this is where that if satan becomes linked with the snake and so people, it's within Jewish tradition, but also later Christian tradition, they'll say, ah, where we saw the son of God in the garden, who is jealous of humans, that seems to be what Satan is doing in Job. And that seems to be what's happening to Satan in other areas, which I'll talk about in a second. And so you, and then you can find the fact that the wrath of God is attributed to David's sin in, in one book. And then centuries later, the next book book telling the same story attributes this to satan and we're starting to get permission to see that not every evil thing that happens is because directly of god that there is another agent at work or there is something else going on a willful pride a willful arrogance which is tempting people away from the rule of god and it's part of the cosmos and this is all related even to the to the philosophical question of the problem of evil and of free will and if god is so good why does evil exist and i mean it's it's intractable it's a fully complicated question but but the christian one of the christian answers to this question and i'll admit that it doesn't solve all our problems is that the evil that's in the world is not because god directly willed it it's because in order to have a free choice to freely choose yes freely choosing no is also an option it's a real option and it's not a fake one because choosing yes is so good that to, to say yes to God has to be a real choice because God didn't make robots. And this choice seems to have been freedom is baked into the beginning of creation. And so the choice is not just humans. It's also all creatures, all creatures like Elohim who have emanated from God are also given this choice. And what happens in the mysterious stories of the Hebrew scriptures is that not all Elohim choose to remain in the place to which they've been created. And this is Satan becomes one of the arch examples of this, but he's not the only one, but he's the arch example. Have a look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. And whereas there's a character, the Luciferian character called the day star or the morning star, the brightest star in the sky, is struck down because of his rebellion. The same character shows up in Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, and here he's called the king of Tyre. And, and again, because the spiritual beings are given rule over nations, these sons of God have a, they're, they're the same, to think of a son of God is also to think of a character in some way with rule and reign. And, and here he's called the king of Tyre, who is, who is an actual king of an actual place, but also this referring to his spiritual being that is part of his role. Uh, an Elohim 
character who's assigned to Tyre, and he's called the King of Tyre, just as is a real man. And the King of Tyre is cast down. He was um, He's described in Ezekiel 28 as being like an angel. But then he's struck down. And, and it's Ezekiel 28 that Jesus is quoting when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Think of what a, a falling star looks like. Uh, this idea that Satan is this, he became, he becomes associated with the king of Tyre, he becomes associated with the morning star. He becomes associated with the serpent. And one of the things that's always happening is the serpent is struck down to the ground. The king of Tyre is struck down to the ground. The day star is struck down. Satan is always falling. It's one of the things Satan does. And then he's going to do it in the Gospels and he's going to do it in the book of Revelation. Um, uh, one of the things about Satan is he's always lift, puffing himself up and he's always being struck back down. Then you have Daniel 7, another key verse where where this is, I've talked about this before, but this is where one like a son of man, it comes and sits at the throne and is given dominion over everything. And the son of man is given dominion over the the areas that the sons of God should have been given area uh, dominion over. So this is just some of the key verses here, but it's all forming the, the imaginative backdrop of the New Testament. I mean, it's worth pointing out that in Roman culture, sons of God was a was a term they used for their Caesars and their kings and their rulers, because the, the more powerful a, a little ruler, the more powerful a ruler you were, the more of a little god you were. So it's a very similar idea, actually, that rule and divinity are connected. And uh, being called a son of God, you know, is a is a good thing for the Romans. Um, and we'll, we'll come across that in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in the New Testament, I mean, there's a lot of, so Jesus identifies with the Son of Man, who, who himself has a relationship to sons of God, being given dominion. Uh, Jesus, when he gives authority, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, he gives authority to Peter and to the church. And he's giving authority about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, there's a divine authority to do with ruling and reigning. And specifically in Matthew 18, by the way, it has to do with conflict resolution. If you go look at that. So it's about managing how we organize ourselves. In John 10, 34 to 35, the Hebrews come to Jesus. They're, they're angry at him. The Jews want to, they accuse him of blasphemy because he's likening himself to a God. And in John 10, 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Even your own scriptures say you are gods. And he goes back and he quotes that very Psalm, which is about sons of God doing a bad job and then new ones being lifted up in their place. Romans 8, I already quoted that all creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's Romans 8, 18 to 24. 1 Corinthians is filled with it. There's there's lots of evidence where he, he talks about people being keys, given keys to the kingdom or being, being uh, wise like God or having the wisdom of God. And he's uh, attributing this to, to believers. He says, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he says, women cover your hair in worship because of the angels. And this was possibly an allusion to the Nephilim. If the old story is that the angels are looking down on humans and seeing the humans as a, the daughters of men as, a, as an object of lust and affection. Well, he then says, all right, humans, 
you are no longer the object of attraction for angels. It's the other way around. You're above them now, looking down on them. That's why you should cover your hair. Uh, uh, it, it's awkward and weird, but I think that might be part of it. There's also, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 6. Hey, believers, don't take each other to court. Don't you know that one day you will judge angels? Philippians 2.15, he says, you, to the believers, you shine like stars in the universe. Hebrews 1 and 2 have lots of this language about Jesus being superior to the angels. And then we are lifted up and reigning with him. I don't know. Many sons are brought to glory. The children share with Jesus in Hebrews 1 and 2. It's quite a lot of that. Go and have a read Hebrews 1 and 2, which is the vision of what Jesus is doing when he reigns. And then pay attention to how much of this is about sons of God being raised up with him. In Second Peter 1, 3 to 4, we're sharing in the divine nature of Jesus. Revelations 2, 26 to 28, this is where you get the, the church or the, the ecclesia that is, is given authority over the nations. The church is given authority over nations. Remember, sons of God had the authority over nations. And now in Revelation 2, the church is given authority over nations. And they're given the rod to rule the nations. Now, I've, I've been in a room with a famous uh, celebrity charismatic preacher whose name most of you will have heard of and I won't say his name but I've been in a room with him having a discussion directly one-to-one with this guy when and uh, we were talking about the the vision for nations in the bible and and this this guy is an American charismatic preacher is very big on the idea that nations are important and are affirmed in the scriptures and he said yeah look see the church is given the rule of the nations the rod to rule the nations well yeah, in Revelations 2, the church is given the rod to rule the nations in the very same verse. We're not it's the same sentence. We're not even talking about another chapter. In the very next line is the church is given the rod to, sma- to smash the nations. This is what the church does. <laughs> it dissolves the nations. The book of Revelation is not a rubber stamp affirmation of nations and their individual claim to sovereignty. The vision of the nations in the book of Revelation is that all the rulers who are quasi-spiritual beings will take their crowns and throw them at the foot of the cross. They throw them at Jesus' feet. The dissolution of the nations is their salvation. The healing of the nations at the end of Revelation is in some ways when they give up their claim to sovereignty and absolute uh, atomistic semi-divine rule their arrogance so the church is given authority over nations it's given the rod or the scepter and then it smashes them and they're given the morning star to you i give the morning star the old rule that's supposed to belong to satan who is of course described by jesus as the prince of the age and of course, it's Satan who says to Jesus, if you bow to me, I'll give you all these nations. So Satan in, in the New Testament is always associated with ruling and reigning of the nations. And he's also associated with this idea of the morning star. And here Jesus says to the church, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And then I'm going to give you the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear. Revelations 3.21 to the one who conquers, to he who overcomes, to the church that endures, I will give you the throne. So, 
there you have it. Sons of God and Satan. Two deeply important concepts in the Old and New Testaments. Two deeply theological ideas and two ways that the earliest Christians used to describe the forces and powers that led to a new political imagination for themselves and to a critique and an undermining of nationalism and patriotism. Who would have thunk it? happy to see Chris and Sean yet again. It has been actually quite a few weeks thanks to recording vagaries of schedules and also just because of the way we've scheduled publishing dates and stuff. Hey guys, I haven't seen you for weeks and weeks. How is it going? Sean, how are you? I'm living the dream as always, my friend. How are you doing? <laughs> You're living the dream. What is what is it like to live a dream right now in, in, uh, in post-COVID, oh, well, it's, it's, almost post-COVID Texas? Well, it's funny because I always joke that, you know, nightmares are dreams too. So it's a little bit of both in terms of, I, I don't usually go that far because that comment usually gets people off track. But yeah. yeah, it's very, you know, we went through the Texas freeze down here in February. Know, where, just crazy times. Yeah, we're very, things got very interesting. And then it's just been, uh, you know, now that from a political standpoint, you're going to go down this road to see kind of the post uh, President Trump era begin with uh, President Biden and all the things that are coming through with that and way that that's trickling down into the social uh, interactions with people. And as we're starting to come kind of out of the pandemic, I mean, here yeah, in Texas, yeah. you know, the governor opened up, uh, opened up, said we don't have to wear masks, but then he forgot to tell people that businesses can make you wear masks. And so it's created a lot of, um, a lot of political turmoil for sure. Yeah, right. As you go, and you go, and you go see people with friends. I saw some yesterday and, and they were critiquing this place that we were in because they wanted people to wear masks inside and they were, we're not going to ever come back here and that kind of stuff. And so it's very, very wow. interesting how something as simple as a mask and even this mandate doesn't really, it's still going to make, and then there's people that want people to wear masks and they're just as upset and angry. And so, so yeah, so not much has changed. We've just changed the medium a little bit. What, I mean, what other kinds of stuff have you seen trickling down? What, what has changed or uh, after, after Trump in, well, the, in terms I, of the I, mood? I think, yeah, I mean, definitely from a professional standpoint out here, I'm in the oil and gas industry, as you both know, and, and definitely, um, I, I think it's almost like this, it's almost like this, this changing of the guard. Like, I think a lot of people felt like now we're, you know, there's arguments that aren't being made anymore. There's not a lot of conjecture around certain topics, big topics, if you will, around the environmental, social and governance worlds that I, I, I run around in. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of um, this acceptance of certain things that before were more, more or less debated. I can think in terms of environmental uh, issues. Right. Uh, nobody's arguing around social diversity and things of that nature, but but it's definitely this, but there's also this element of if you don't agree with what's kind of becoming the norm or what's becoming the expectation of what's going forward, then you need to be eliminated. And, and I mean, I don't mean like hurt like uh, livingly, but your idea, there's not a lot right. of room for other rhetoric. And so right. it's def definitely starting to see a lot of that. Yeah, we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen the end of the partisan fighting at all, have we? It's getting harder and harder. <laughs> I've noticed people are just over here in, in England, like Trump has just dropped off the headlines, which people are really relieved. It's kind of like, oh, we just don't have to think about it for a while. Everybody knows that there's still problems definitely brewing away and that we haven't seen the end of, of it. But 
people just also just like, just give us a break. And I was like halfway through a basketball game or something. They're just clutching our sides going, okay, just take a breather. We'll go back into it eventually. But uh, but we don't have to live there. So we don't really know what it's like actually brewing in the moment. So No, and I think real quick, I think the, the thing to look at is going to be, especially in line of what we always talk about, you know, restorative versus retributive justice. Okay. Because then that's the big thing that there's people that are going to want their pound of flesh uh, and I think for all kinds of reasons. And so that that's where I see some of the, in terms of rhetoric and what's coming and the expectations of what that looks like. Right. It's going to be how that, how that plays out. Yeah. Chris, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing fine. As we record this, it's, it's Holy Week for me. So okay. I've, I've got my head hunkered down in multiple services and, and that, that type of thing. I, I'm, I'm preaching on Easter, you know, so I feel like, uh, I feel like it's 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 hard to preach these days because it's uh, there's just so many different people to please, <laughs> as if that's why I preach. I just preach to just you know fluff everyone's pillows, you know, make make people happy. More so than ever this year, as a as a minister, I'm like thinking like, yeah, what, what is what is God calling us to as God's people? Uh, what what is Easter? Right. speak to, to people in, in a way that's more uh, political in that sense. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm contemplating that. So that's, 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 that's my week this week. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading and, and are you in, in person churches or how does that work for Yeah, we're, we're, we are currently in person. Okay. And uh, you know, we're a smaller church and we're in our space is decently sized at the moment. So we're able to social distance and about half of our people are vaccinated, to be honest with you. Um, and the other, about a third of them have had COVID. So there you go. You know, like uh, we're, we're covered. Our bases are covered. Um. <laughs> what are you, what are you reading for Easter? You said you're starting to, you're reading some stuff for Easter or you're preparing. Where are you thinking? You, well, you know, I, I have the, uh, the, the, the N.T. Wright, uh, Michael Bird, the, the, the New Testament in oh, its yeah. world. I'm just, mm. just kind of, you know, just to immerse myself in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Um, why am I forgetting her name? Powers and Submissions. Sarah Coakley. Sarah Coakley. She has a chapter on the resurrection that I just want to, I want to kind of put yeah. myself into there. So yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't read it yet. So I'm excited. I wonder how well Sarah Coakley can preach. I wonder how well you can preach it from the, from the pulpit. I'm, I'm curious as well. I'm curious as well. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> so Chris, what did you think of the whole the stuff we were doing if we were, we were talking about um powers and principalities so now we're talking about sons of god and satan and so there's a there's a segue there there's a segue for the ages for you go from powers and principalities to sons of god and satan what what were some of the stuff you that came up when when you heard me teaching about that well i i'm curious because when you bring up this subject <clears throat> you immediately take me back to my youth where we, wow. you know, people would talk about, <laughs> what kind of youth? <laughs> well, well, talking about, talking about demons and angels. Oh, I mean, okay, right. I mean, I mean, I, that's cool. That to me, this is like Christian sci-fi fantasy stuff. Are you a Frank go, e. yeah, Peretti? Get, Frankie Peretti? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're telling me some cool stories here that I love. Now, now what, I, and it's actually very interesting. You brought up Michael Heiser mm -hmm. and, there's a there's a man I used to go to church with that uh, he loves this guy like totally has gotten into Michael Heiser as a, as a scholar right. and so I'm glad you brought him up I haven't gotten into him enough myself I I, I think I, I am curious I, I, basically listening to you talk about this it just piqued my curiosity I, I I'm wondering ha ah, where are you, where are you going with this right. because for me in my background there's this tension between the spiritual realm 
mm-hmm. that I was taught about, the yeah. spiritual realm that script, scripture portrays for us. And then this other aspect of the, of the powers and the principalities and how the powers of this world work. And so I guess in some ways I'm, I'm ready for the next chapter. I'm curious where you're going. I'm curious, I'm curious what, you're, what you're telling us like, oh, well then how shall we now live in that sense? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it will. I don't know if there's a direct application. I, I think it'll be interesting. We're going to talk with Sean what he thinks about when people try to directly apply some of this stuff to politics. But I'm, yeah. more, I'm more right now trying to think about some of the undercurrents that are running through some of these texts that we have that we maybe hyper-spiritualize them without noticing that, in fact, a lot of the times when these texts are talking about demons and angels, they're actually just talking about authority or they're talking about nations. So there's just, I'm just trying to draw some connections between the biblical imagination when it comes to nations and the fate of nations or authority and, the, and, and what it means when we say that we're members of the citizens of the kingdom or we're heirs of co-heirs with Christ and all that kind of language. I don't even have like a direct applicable forced forceful point to make. It's more like, uh, are you aware that all the spiritual language in the Bible is basically political? (laughs) And then are you also aware that that also means that every time you do something you think is just political. If you think you're, if you think, Oh, my patriotism and my nationalism is my political identity and it's different from my Christian identity. Are you aware that you're actually, making spiritual allegiances and spiritual decisions when you think you're just being political. So that's all I'm doing is trying to show that the dividing line between those worlds wasn't, wasn't as big in the biblical world as it is in ours. That division is, I mean, it still doesn't hold. So just because you think there's a division between the spiritual and the political, all that means is you're not, you're operating one step removed from reality because by spiritual, we just mean invisible forces which influence our lives, mm-hmm. which is politics as well, right? And so mm-hmm. to try and say, oh, well, maybe actually the Bible is way more politics than you thought. That every time it describes principalities or powers or angels or demons or sons of God, it's actually describing some relationship to power. I guess that's all I was trying to, to bring out. Yeah, and so, and, and this this might get into what Sean is going to talk about, but the most intriguing thing that you discussed was that passage in Revelation. You talk about the whatever the whoever the famous preacher was, and you, mm-hmm. you talk about us judging the nations, and then you say, yeah, but what about the dismantling of the nations? That's actually what we're called to. Yeah, and so I think that is to me the most intriguing aspect of it all. What does that look like? You know, like like asking that question. Like, there's a whole paradigm to enter into there what that might look like I'm, I'm curious about that myself maybe this this is where the anarchist thread comes in well yeah maybe maybe the fate of nations or the story of the nation might be one worth spending some time on right to, to go into that the, the kind of nations and fate of nations and uh i mean i've just been doing some work on the sermon on the mount and i was even noticing like even since recording this session on sons of god i noticed it's even in the sermon on the mount and i hadn't noticed it before because obviously blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of god sons of god and uh, and you're getting the peacemaker idea and it's 
and I realized, oh, wow, there's, it's even happening here. It's even happening in the idea that, and then when Jesus says, you are the light to, of the world, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the salt of the earth is like a Jewish reference, and light of the world is a Gentile reference, because there's constantly having to do with um, Jews do what they do in order to be a light to the Gentiles or to the world. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he's saying, you're the salt of the earth, which is, has kind of a Jewish context. And he says, and you're a light to the world, which has that Gentile mission context, which is also connected to uh, all these scriptures talking about being a light to the world, shining like stars in the universe. And you're realizing, oh, wow, <laughs> there's that coming in too. He's talking about your relationship to the nations will be as a star in the universe, which is right back to you're a peacemaker, you're a son of God. There just seems to be these these connections running throughout all these texts that have to do with like our status, uh, and, and we get to witness to the nations. So Gentiles and nations are often the same thing. So I I think maybe we do have to do something about the role of the nation. What what Sean? What, what we we we've referred to you a couple of times now, saying, "Oh, let's see what Sean has to say." Well, it made me wonder if if Satan wasn't the first prophet, and what I mean by that okay. is you look at you look at the original you know, Hasatan and the acute, this idea of an accuser, it made me think in almost in a prophetic sense in, in regards to kind of that challenging of what, um, what is going on when you accuse or when you kind of bring forth this, this, this desire to have people, you know, re rectify or look at themselves and find out what it is they're doing and why that seems to be the original intent. And what I think is probably the most productive and, and leads to the most introspection. And I think ultimately closeness with God, but we've, we've allowed by our politics and by the very nature of what we like to find around these ideas of counter, you know, this dualism where Satan is, the, is this embodiment of evil over there yeah. and the bad, the bad guys over there. And if I can eliminate the bad guy, then nothing but good will be left. And it becomes part of this narrative that we've, we've allowed to seep into everything that we're, that we're about, especially I think in the Western world where, where we have to have that enemy, we have to have that and, and just an enemy that's counter to what we are. So we can somehow justify, not only give ourselves righteousness, but also it also is, it also is an answering to this ultimate uh, goal of trying to reduce peace. We see peace as this never having any conflict. We see right. comfort as never having any suffering. And yet I just haven't seen that stay true. Now you can find those moments. You yeah, can find yeah. that, you know, you can, I've ridden, you know, I've, so I've, I've flown business class across the world. Like I know what it means to, to sit in luxury, but those things come and go. And it's, and even then, it's not, I think what we find is it's not the thing. And so then what is the accuser's role and what is it that that, that that role can be besides just this embodiment of evil? And that's this opportunity, I think, to introspect and reflect, which makes me think of the prophets as I, as I understand them. When, they, when they've come in terms of their, all the stories we can think about, it's usually to, to stir inside somebody rectifying what you've done wrong, you know, and you know, in front of King David or whoever, name your favorite kind of situation where somebody comes in and says and pushes back on what's going on, right? And I think there's a part of us as well that recognizes the value in that. See somebody who's able to push and say, well, what about, we keep thinking down this road and we've become, started to become narrow in our vision. We've started to become hyper nuanced in what we look at something and we need that person, that entity, that argument to step in and go, well, what about to help us stay not so narrow that we're that we miss everything you know, we miss so much more than what we're what's out there and help us step back and go well what about and i know accuser 
I think we typically think in the West that starts to, again, starts to get into a courtroom. It starts to become part of this justice system. It starts to become part right. of this something went wrong and there has to be a good and a bad in that. But I think in, in terms of the context and if you start to, and if you allow the imagination to looking at these aspects and looking at less as a confrontational authority power over another or rectifying justice from a, you know, from a retributive standpoint and more of a, what's wrong with this? What, what can we do better? Where's the issue? Where's the where's the opportunity to struggle through to to to, to improve, to evolve, to transform into something else, and a greater understanding of what it is that that God has us intended for this. Are you thinking in terms of like redemption? So the idea that there's nothing there's nothing that can't be redeemed or forgiven. Like everything is everything. It could be a uh, a catalyst for something good eventually. Right, and I don't I don't like to be absolute, but some of those things, some of these things like that, to me seems like an absolute because if it's not. If if no if there's never anything that's restorative if there's if there's always if there's something that is truly so bad that happens on any level and I yeah. and and I also this is the part of the this statement that if, and that takes into account everything well that that's a lot you're now you're talking about you can go as far down that road as you want to in terms of genocide murder I mean right, just the injustice right, right, that we're right. able so if you say all that's a that's a big that's a that's a that's everything. Yeah, but if it's yeah. not all, and then we have to, and then there's some sort of list or there's some sort of line, the problem with that line, if it's not all, is it where in the world do you draw that? You know, and then if it's not restorative, it's retributive. And I just, I just haven't seen retributive justice last or have, have a really truly an evolution, you know, transformative impact. That's not what got the thief to change that their mind, on, you know, next to sit next to. Those are the things that people that followed Jesus did that wasn't, those weren't the things that got him, that got people to stir inside of them a different way to look at something and ultimately change, change the hearts and minds of people. Well, this is part of what I was doing my research on the Sermon on the Mount and, and looking at the, the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And Scott McKnight is, the, is a biblical scholar I was reading, and he, and he wants to remind the readers that the Sermon on the Mount has a restorative function to it. So it's, it's like saying to the readers, you are you do have authority like you are going to inherit the earth you are going to be sons of god you do have all these positions of power quote unquote but your role is one of uh restoring and redeeming and the uh, salt has all sorts of functions and it always has to do with making things better right and preserving and making mm -hmm. better and uh and and the gentile light to the world is always like you're not you're not searing the gentiles you're not destroying them with your nuclear bomb blast you're a light that draws people to you and there's this it's like this constant idea that like the leadership of the kingdom of god is not one like the the nations would do they don't rule the kingdom doesn't rule the way the nations rule and so there is actually you're right is there something that flows from that when it comes to justice it really becomes important in the revelation world that we're looking at which is the shalom and the everything in its right order everything in its right and that's a vision of justice and yeah yeah there's definitely something there like everybody wants justice but does re retribution actually ever bring that would, would it retributive justice ever actually be justice if if it meant that you've just decimated and destroyed your enemies or your the people you've called evil that's a good dividing line actually isn't it between retribution and restoration well, it, for me, it was for me it was definitely the part about listening to, when to the words of Jesus as I read them. 
as you really play that out, I mean, how do yeah. you, I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? I mean, I'd love to know what, what Chris thinks about it because, but I just, I just, where does it, cause if it doesn't, if it doesn't stop it, then it means everybody. If it means everybody, it means, then that means everybody. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't mean everybody, where in the world does that line be drawn and how in the world do you know? And that doesn't make any, that makes less sense to me than it does all of it. And then part of all of it doesn't make sense to me either. Cause there's part of me that's like, no, I want, I want you to suffer for what I suffer <laughs> kind of thing. And but then I just have to let that go. Well, Chris, you've been, you've been thinking about Easter and the cross. What, what else is the cross except a decision to suffer harm rather than inflict it? That's so interesting. Yeah. I, okay. Thank you. Stephen. you're going to, I'm going to write that down. You're going to give me a, my, one, of my, <laughs> one of my sermon points. I, I think one of the things that I've been struck with, and I've, I've gone around in circles with some people about this, is the, the um, I'm, I am sorry to mention this zeitgeist word, but uh, the cancel culture thing. And what I've seen in the midst of this is this swirling echo chamber of finger pointing. I mean, it's, it's very, I mean, to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, it's literally this, is it the plank or is it the speck in, your, in your, my right. brother's eye? And I think maybe what I'm seeing is this lack of formation. So I, I think as a, as a church minister, as a leader, as a teacher, I'm concerned about formation. And, and here's what I mean about that. As, as soon as my, my conservative friends, just to use that word conservative, they think, oh, we're being canceled. And then they raise up all these issues. Look at how the liberals and progressive cancel everybody. And then the liberal side goes, um, are you guys serious? <laughs> like the conservatives have spent the last several hundred years or whatever, just canceling people. It's just been this long exercise. And so then that's when the echo chamber begins. And I think formation is important because then you can talk about, okay, so this is how our, this is our own tendency within ourselves. There is no such thing as this cancel culture rising up in the last couple of years. It's always been this way, everybody. And We've, we've lived in a world that lacks mercy, that lacks grace for one another, that always wants to destroy the other. That is, that, that's just reality. And I think liberals, if I were to critique them a little bit, their, their narrative is one of liberation, of one of, of we are setting people free. Okay. But I think maybe they could reconcile with the fact that, oh, oh, I have the, the, the desire within me to destroy others as well. How can, I, how can I look at that within my own self and go, oh, okay, I'm gonna step back. And it's there within me. And, yeah. and conservatives can look in within themselves and go, oh, it's not always just this righteous cause. Oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm standing up for morality. It's like, no, I wanna destroy my neighbor. Oh, why do I wanna yeah. destroy my neighbor? You know, like, so th- these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It's not. It's not the kind of spectrum the right or left, progressive, conservative. Who cares? It's the destruction. Of, it's the I want to wipe my enemy off the face of. I think, like like Sean said, I think peace means the absence, the complete absence of you, my enemy. Mm. That I won't have peace until I've completely wiped you off the face of the earth. And I think that, that I mean, Paul. Did I mention? I can't even remember if I talked about this. That the apostle Paul mentions this in Galatians. He talks about. The people who scratch and fight and act like animals he says like you're you're mm. fighting like animals now mm. and james also will say something similar where the idea is like you don't you know you're meant to judge angels don't you know that you are like this these beings of divine ability to <laughs> tell right from wrong and to judge the earth with wisdom and righteousness and now you're just acting like animals you're just fighting and scratching and killing each other because you're scared about limited resources basically 
Well, and if I can, uh, so Chris, I love that you said that because it really ties back into what I was saying back in the very beginning about what I'm seeing out there. And that's really a good element. So on, on LinkedIn, I saw a post um, where somebody said something. It was, it was a page that I follow and it's about female empowerment. It's about women that are coming through the business world. And that's, that's part of this, you call this evolution of this kind of retribute or the pendulum is swinging back where we're, we're, we're celebrating this and pointing at it. The headline though said that, that men always steal, like, like men in charge will always steal women's ideas below them and take credit for it. They will always do that. And so as, as somebody who reads that kind of stuff, and of course in the back of my head, I'm reading this going always, like they all, like every single time, I drive my kids crazy with this because they'll say never and I'll go and I'll try to go down that road of what never means. And maybe we could, but I understand because I do it too. Like, you know, I tell my wife, oh, you never do this. And that's not true, right? There, there's never is not, it does, it's never, never. <laughs> as odd as that sounds. But, but there was somebody that tried to make a post and they, they, they commented and just said, hey, is it always, do men always do that? And immediately the, com- the, the comments became at him for just bringing up the idea that maybe it's not always. And he said, maybe if men are jerks, they jerk people that are not good people fundamentally, whether they're men, women, doesn't matter. They're gonna, whether it doesn't really matter their ethnicity or anything else like that, or their sexuality, if they're, they're some men will, some men will do this, but people do this is what Chris is saying. It's not this. I think we need to stop saying this is a, this is a liberal or conservative problem. This is a, it's a peep, it's a person problem. Like this is what humans do. This is part of our our struggle is recognizing that when and when we get our chance, and, and then the irony is that quite honestly, they have an argument. This is the I think this is where people struggle, Chris, especially in the United States, because you're because now you're looking at people that have experienced, you know, people of color, indigenous people that have been true, I mean, suffering. And now we're going, hey, sorry, we're having this woke moment and realize that we're a bunch of jerks and have been and being part of this system that's been oppressing you. Mm. So let's change it. And they're going, and so I understand this desire to go, yeah, and that means you're out of here, buddy. And all the other people that have caused this and this, this company and these people, and you're out. And so I understand the need to do that, but then it goes back to what Chris, what you're trying to allude to, which, but we can't, we just do the same thing over again and flip to the other side. We're not helping each other, but it takes somebody in the middle to have the courage and the strength and the grace, which makes me think of, of the essence of, of the Christ, which is, is to not be retributive and to be restorative. But that takes a lot of character to do that. Yeah, which is back to what Chris said about character formation. Uh, how much of this is not, it's not even really, yeah, these aren't an ethic. This is about, like this sons of God business. It doesn't come with like, it's not a rule book. It right. doesn't come with a checklist. It's more of an identity of, well, this is the, uh, is this the kind of actions that people who are powerful people really make? <laughs> That's the more of the idea. It's not like sons of God do this, this, and this, and they don't do this, this, and this. It's more like sons of God approach power in this way in any given situation. And I, I guess that's the kinds of stuff I was trying to chip away at. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the, 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 the always never radical, like sweep them from the face of the earth kind of um, gesture that you evoke, Sean, that's one that there's a lot of fear behind because it's that fear of purity being being uh besmirched they feel like we can't possibly live we cannot live at peace with something that is uh, wrong in our society like we we recognize it's wrong and so now we have to do whatever it takes to just get rid of it and i think that's the impulse that perhaps is being asked we're asking to think about it's not to say there's no such thing as right or wrong it's to say well, well how do you live with it now that you've recognized it as right or wrong now what do we do with it and i think really fearful people who are fearful about their power 
and and uh, if they think it's precarious they're the ones that will swipe things off the board but people who are perhaps more secure like genuine genuinely secure in in their positions and where their power is from perhaps they're less defensive or less fearful chris what were you yeah, I, what, what, what I was immediately struck with when you, when you talked about that is uh, my stance in America on the Second Amendment and gun rights. So okay. I have this desire within me to be like, just get rid of it. Just stop. Like, get right. rid of all guns. I don't care about your, you, and your, you and your guns anymore. And what I've seen as the immediate cry is, oh, so you want to start a civil war? <laughs> And right. people will, right. people are like, yeah, I'll bring down society if you try to take my guns away. So I've, right. I've really changed my approach on that. And I've kind of gone, oh, so if I'm going to rob someone else of their power to have their weapons, they're, they're not going to actually change at all. They're not going to actually see that that's an act of love. I'm trying to liberate them, right? I'm trying to, right. <laughs> trying to free them of their guns. Yeah. And, and it's like, that, I, I've just seen that as a pointless and futile endeavor. And so instead, I'm just trying to change my tone. Like, it's honestly, like, maybe one of the ways that I look at it is, is I'm, I'm less concerned with someone's ability to defend themselves than teaching them how to live into the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You, you know, so like, okay, okay, you want to defend yourself? Fine. But actually, let's, let's look at this over here. Let's look at the blesseds are. Let's look at what that means. Can we just talk about that some more? So instead of basing it in legality, basing it in law, robbing someone else of their power, which they think they, they need to have it, right? To them, this is like part of their identity. Okay, well, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about these other things. And it, to me, that's my way of dismantling. To me, that's my way of being a light. That's my way of, of bringing about that way of peace. I don't know if it'll get there. Like it, somebody has to be willing to listen, but it's just all part of the process, I guess. I mean, it might not work. Exactly. Like I, I don't think we've ever lived in a world in which everyone cheered in unison for the sermon on the mount it just doesn't work that way but it's still good i mean right like it's still it's still good it's still salt and light it still is all those things even if it's not the majority mass popular consensus and i i think you just have to learn to live with that so so Stephen, let me somebody ask a question about that because i i feel like i feel like we have the capacity that we could i feel like we i feel like okay. there's a it's kind of like um I look at like business. I look at like anything like this. We we get to we get to decide. Um, I think God has done uh, an amazing. I don't know, service isn't the right word, but he, God has stepped down from from God's authority because God could just, the divine could come in and just rule yeah, all. Yeah, that's would, the kenosis going on there. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but but I think I don't. But I don't think God also put us in a position that was un, unobtainable or not right and it isn't and i think that but what the formula to get there and what it's going to take to get there goes into things like shalom goes into these moments yeah. that we have to oh, i don't think sermon on the mount is unobtainable i just no, think no. It, it is not obtained by many right. people no we haven't no by but choice. in terms of the, yeah and it makes you think of what chris was saying as somebody yeah we've had this discussion about the second amendment and down here where i am and where how i grew up that's a it's one of those topics and i totally agree with you to me it's kind of like it reminds me of the bowling for columbine uh, documentary with Michael Moore, there was one part of that I just really didn't understand at all because he went up to Canada and he started talking about the guns per capita, but how the murder rate was extremely low. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, to me, then that told me that, that the guns aren't the problem. Right. It, 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 it's, not, it's not that explosions are the problem or it's not that, you know, that physics and math and geometry that make, you know, things like rockets work or make cars work. 
those that's not the problem it's what we do with it so it's up yeah. to us ultimately how to, how to handle that so you can have all you can have a house full of guns but if your heart and mind are in line with the christ and if your heart if you're you know if they're listening if they're listening to you on on, on sunday and if they're really in, in deep, then the need for those things and maybe the opportunities there in case there's an ultimate you know whatever down the road but fundamentally on a day-to-day it's not going to be where you go to to solve the problem is to violence into things things of this nature and can i do well, it in a different way Michael Moore actually made, look, I'm not going to die on the hill of defending Michael Moore for everything he ever said, but he did make a very good point in that documentary where for him, he said, it's the fear. The reason why the guns are so bad in America and not in other countries, which also have guns is the constant narrative of fear and that they are out to get you. They are going to take everything. You don't do it. No one else will. You know, it's just that constant litany of it's up to you to defend your patch of land and and uh, you're on your own it's that radical individualism but again isn't that interesting like, the fear is precisely the thing that jesus is trying to get out here even in the sermon on the mount or even in these things about do right. not screw impulses well you're acting like animals you're scared that you're going to lose your resources so you act like animals and that's that's this kind of sons of god business it's, it's aiming directly at that that sense of fear of, of movements and institutions based on uh, we got to circle the wagons, otherwise we'll lose the little bit we already have. So, quick yeah. book recommendation, by the way. Right before the pandemic hit, I read this book, and it really messed up my perspective on this in a way. And that is, Daniel Gardner wrote a book called "The Science of Fear," where he basically goes back and looks at looks at how industries, and especially around, and I don't want to throw out everybody's favorite punching bag, but how how I'll just say this. Pick your favorite way that you engage with information slash whatever that medium is. And how if you really look at the core of what they're doing and how they operate, that fear, right? That is why that's what gets you to stay. That's what gets you to stir up. And that's what gets you to then get, oh my, and then I think that's where this kind of come full circle. That's where Satan becomes this ultimate source of this fear of why I need a security system, why I need to have guns in my house, why I need to have, mm-hmm. you know. I need to be at the peak physical condition and I need to make as much money as I can so that I'm, I build up all this around this idea of this invasion that's coming. But statistically, you start looking at reality and you look at gun violence realities, you look at the risk and you just start breaking it down. It just isn't adding up to what, but that fear is awful powerful and it's very, very hard to get around for sure. Well, at least here in the US, I should say. Well, that sounds like exactly the book we should be reading. And it also sounds like an excellent place to wind down this conversation. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Chris, for spending time with me. And as always, I look forward to seeing you in the tent sometime in the future. Till then, farewell. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenttheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.